0: TikTok, Be Real, Snapchat, Twitter, Insta. You might use these apps every single day to connect with friends, to watch your favourite content creators or jump on the most recent viral trend. But in the grand scheme of this thing called time, social media is a relatively new phenomenon. I remember my first account on that very new and exciting platform called Facebook. And that seems a very long time ago indeed. Nowadays, TikTok is leading the charge. Out of 4.8 billion internet users worldwide, over 20% use TikTok. And it's particularly popular with users between 16 and 24 years old. Now, social media provides us with a platform where we can express ourselves and share stories. But with that has come the rise of echo chambers, cancel culture, cyberbullying and even isolation in an increasingly connected world. I'm Professor Alice Roberts and today I'm asking the question, can social media be a force for good? So let's make some content for the Curiosity Vault from the University of Birmingham. Today's guests are Dr. Sophie Kinghill, Senior Fellow at the University, who focuses on the importance of youth voice, specialising in sexual behaviours and assessment in children and young people. And Dr. Ruth Page, whose main research explores the language people use when they tell stories, particularly in social media contexts. So Sophie, can I start with you? How has social media changed the way that young people communicate with each other? Because this is a, it is a new form of communication which has really hit us in the last, what, 10 or 20 years really.
1: Yeah and I think um, quite often if we start by thinking about how wider society often frowns upon young people and their use of social media but actually it's a double-edged sword. There's some really positives for young people that can come out of social media such as finding their own identities, finding local communities for who they are as person and help them find their way in the world when it's so complex at the moment and there are so many different things to negotiate and of course I don't really want to say the c-word but Covid if it wasn't for social media they would have felt incredibly isolated so Mm. it did a, a hell of a lot for young people in terms of that as well.
0: We'll come back to how young people use social media and how it might have changed over the last couple of years. I think that's absolutely fascinating. But Ruth, could I ask you a very general question to start about storytelling? I mean, how how has social media changed the way that we tell each other stories? Well,
2: I think people have told stories for many, many years. But the thing about social media is it changes who you're telling that story to and how that story can be taken out of one context and put into another context. Mm. Also, it changes the way that you might use an image rather than just your words to tell a story. So, for example, things like Snapchat or Instagram or TikTok, people are filming themselves or taking pictures and using that. So they're not just telling about what they're doing right now. They're showing what they're doing right now in a particular kind of place. And the way those images and sounds and those video resources can be used to tell stories of all kinds of different forms and in different kinds of contexts. I think that's really changed.
0: Yeah. So it is. It's about the potential of the medium, the the way that it's using text and images and video.
2: Yeah. So kind of showing the moment rather
0: than just sharing the moment. Yeah. Now. I- did ask both of you to bring in something which says something about you and your your work sophie what have you decided to bring um, in with you yeah
1: there are quite a few items that i wanted to bring but out of all of them i've chosen the peacock feather so it really means to me that you've got to maintain your sense of fun when you're working with young people you've got to maintain a sense of humor It was actually in a cocktail that I had with a colleague that I'm quite close to who works in Scotland and we work on quite heavy topics such as harmful sexual behaviour and all of the aspects surrounding that and all of the complexities but it just kind of keeps me grounded and I keep it in the office and I look at it and I just think even if what we're doing is a drop in the ocean it's really good and we're having an impact but we've got to still maintain our sense of self within that Mm. and not get lost in the topic especially when we're studying the kind of darker areas of life.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful object as well. Ruth, what about you? What have you brought in? Wow,
1: I have brought you an iconic bag
0: I feel Bonita
2: Yeah And the expression on your face tells me that you don't use TikTok (laughs) enough. (laughs) (laughs) What am I missing here, Ruth? You are missing the reference So I feel Bonita is part of a TikTok trend Right (laughs) So it comes from a little clip from Family Guy originally And in the original clip you have the character Chris and the dog Brian and the dog Brian has been dressed in a chinque dress and Chris turns to the dog Brian and says do you or do you not feel Bonita and the dog says I feel (laughs) Bonita And Chris says, wonderful, because you look Bonita. So this trend really took off in TikTok, and it took off in all kinds of different directions, lots of people using it to create lots of kind of parodies and really funny versions of different kinds of Bonita figures. So dogs, cats, even the capybara. (laughs) So bizarre. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I know. And and using it to kind of have create an in-joke. But actually, some of it was quite serious as well. People talking about really feeling quite insecure about what they looked like, appearance pressure, what happens when you're going out and your friend might not feel very good. And so this became a little bit of an in-joke in our family at home. And so the reference to Benita kind of crept into everyday life. And then my husband bought me this bag. And so I wanted to bring it because I think it shows lots of things. It shows how something that's quite lighthearted can carry quite a serious message. Mm. It also shows you how things that you see online end up impacting real life decisions like even whether you purchase something or not and I just love that it's a bag because you know even the most light hearted thing can carry all kinds of content yeah. so yeah,
0: yeah that's why I brought it up. it is fascinating isn't it how we create these these memes I mean I think that memes are, are stories aren't they, oh, we've, they are. we've always done that it's, they they always, totally it's what are. humans have always done yeah. but social media seems to have unleashed it in a, in a, in a new way and yeah. it's unleashed creativity in a new way as well Sophie, I want to go back to something that you touched on in your your early introduction, which is that social media, I think, still has this kind of reputation of being inherently bad. There might be some good things about it, but it's bad. Do you agree with that or is it more complex?
1: No, I don't, I don't agree with that as a kind of absolute statement. There are elements of social media that, that are bad and there's no getting away from that but there's this assumption, especially by older generations that all social media is bad but it isn't and that's the thing that we're not listening to at the moment in terms of young people. We're kind of talking over the tops of their heads and, and mm. we assume that everything's bad and in relation to the research that I've carried out, especially when over the Covid years and thinking about sexual behaviours in children and young people, we assume all interactions of a relationship nature between young people is bad on social media, but it isn't, especially, like I said, you know, having that loss of physical connectivity for young people was a huge blow in COVID mm-hmm. and social media managed to foster that for them. But I think we need what we need to do really is start listening to them rather than talking about them, making assumptions about them, doing research about them that isn't driven by them. We always have to have their voices at the forefront because they're the experts in the world that they're living in at the moment. I mean, I'm 43 now, so it might as well be an alien world yeah. when I look at young people, my own children, you know, it's, they might as well live on a different planet. So we must always listen to them and, and keep that kind of the dialogue open, and that's where the issues come up, is when we think they're empty vessels. They're not. They've got such a lot of agency, and they are the experts in themselves, so we should be led by them, but we have the platforms to perhaps platform the voices they've had and and kind of push these kind of agendas that they need us to so we can be their vessels rather than them being ours. So how do you make sure that young people are at the heart of your research? The majority of the research projects that I've got I've got young people steering groups so I've got a project at the moment that's looking at sexual behaviours in 13 to 18 year olds and what's healthy, problematic, harmful and I've got a steering group of 16 to 18 year olds and a steering group of 14 to 16 year olds and so, just as an example, you know, I'm going to do an online survey, one of the methods that I'm using. And I took it to the steering group. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. And I've been in this field for 20 years. I thought it was great. And they just tore it to shreds. They were just really? Like, really <laughs> what is this? That we're not going to, inter- people aren't going to understand what you mean there. And really reworded everything yeah. for me. And, you know, it did me a huge favour in terms of the data now that I'm going to get because they helped me phrase it, they helped me understand the questions I was going to ask and how to frame them. I've got a youth graffiti project at the moment, the local graffiti artist, Void One, about the importance of listening to youth voice. And again, that's being led by them. And time and time again, they tell us, you're not listening. You're not listening to us. And again, this is where I realised I know nothing. I had a project designing a resource for relationships and sex ed. So I got some research money, went into a group of 14, 15-year-olds. And I said, come on, let's design a resource. Here's the relationships and sex ed policy. Let's pick a topic. Isn't this going to be fantastic? What topic should we pick? And they were like, no, it's not really about the topic or a resource you could be a good teacher in relationships and sex ed with a pen and a piece of paper so why don't we make a top tips for for teachers and school leadership teams and that's what we did and we created a booklet it's free a booklet but again that was me going in there with a preconceived idea that I thought was absolutely fantastic you know having worked in the field for 20 years and they were like no you're wrong and it's that's where we have to take that step back and listen especially about social media they are the experts at social media not us it's interesting
0: because if we think about There's a slightly clunky term, and I can never think of a better term, but public engagement with research. We've kind of gone from, I think, probably at the end of the 20th century, thinking that we need to improve public engagement with research. And that means going out and talking to people more. And we're now at a point where actually we realise that the public engagement with research is better when researchers are listening very, very early on and when actually people are part of that research, rather than being seen as some kind of external audience for it. And that's incredibly important when you've got differences in age and differences in the way people people communicate. We need to dig down into this a little bit more, I think, the idea of social media being an ill in our society. Where has that
2: come from? Is it simply that older people are worried about the pace of change, do you think, Ruth? I don't think it's anything new at all. If you look at the telephone, for example, when the telephone was first invented and began to be used, people were of the telephone there was fear that you know that if you use the telephone it's going to give you an electric shock or it might attract thunder and lightning or even that it might attract some kind of evil spirit this was the telephone i mean now we think was well, a telephone <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who uses their landline these days but so i think this kind of fear and attaching value to a technology rather than thinking about the people who are using Mm. the technology is something that has actually been around for a very long time and it's easy to fixate on oh it's social media or it's the television or it's the telephone when actually it's about people and actually like you were saying listening to people well understanding what their needs are and trying to find solutions with them and with people who have got expertise to bring those things together that can actually make a difference. So I think you can often pick up news articles where they're trying to exaggerate the negativity of things because let's face it, negativity is a a really powerful news value. Mm. We know that. Positivity is far less likely to get you a news story. So in terms of how things circulate, if you emphasise something that is bad then you're more likely to get people to listen to that story from a kind of a mainstream news perspective. So I think there's a whole complex range of things feeding into it. I don't think it's just an age issue. I think it's much, much bigger than that. And really thinking about, okay, let's not just go for a simple explanation here. Let's try and find out what's really going on in terms of the people, the context and what's working in a particular situation, rather than, oh, do you know what? It's that telephone.
0: For goodness sake, don't use the telephone.
2: (laughs) And that is your job as researchers, isn't it? To look at a
0: complex problem and to work out how to take it apart um, and actually analyse it. Because presumably some of this worry, concern, anxiety about social media may be unfounded. It may be that actually when people learn more about it, that they're they're happier with it. But presumably there are some anxieties that that are real and we, we need to get to the bottom of that. How do we go about that?
1: Yeah so so you know again it's coming back to the people that are using it the most which are young people and listening to them but the, you know the concerns aren't something to kind of frown at people about and, and judge them because it is moving at such an exponential rate. The development of social media we are literally having to run to keep up so in terms of the work that I do around harmful sexual behaviours and access to pornography we're running to keep up with everything to safeguard children and young people but again yeah. they need to be at the forefront of these discussions. We can't sweep things under the carpet and pretend they're not happening. And this is why we have to be led by them. So in in terms of some of the kind of darker issues with social media, we need to listen to them. Mm. But we also, we shouldn't be naive. They are seeing things at a much younger age. They are accessing things at a much younger age. We need to be there in an education capacity, in a support capacity to help them deconstruct what they're seeing because anything can pop up on a social media feed. It's supporting them, negotiating that effectively for their own emotional health, but also not completely dismissing social media completely. I mean, the worst thing you can do to a young person is take the phone off them. What that does, it just makes people more covert. I don't know if if you remember, like I said, I was 43. When people used to smoke behind the bike sheds, you could catch them. We'd get caught. I don't smoke anymore for anyone out <laughs> there. Um, you could get caught, get a detention. You'd just get better at hiding. You'd just become more covert. Yeah, However, yeah. if if you were caught smoking and they sat down with you and they told you about the taxation on cigarettes, the health implications of cigarettes and all of these different... Infrastructures of danger, then you're more likely to be able to negotiate it properly Mm -hmm. and then have informed consent and make informed decisions about what you're doing. And the same kind of thing can map over online. You know, if we are informing them and creating a safe space where they can talk about this, because quite often young people, when we talk to them about social media, will stick to a social script. Because time and time again, we say, we know best, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that, when really we need to be saying, what's happening? Is there anything you want to talk about? It's a safe Mm. space. You know, anything's on the table that you've seen that you want to take apart and think about.
0: And are you talking about creating that safe space in schools? I mean, where where do we create those safe spaces to have these conversations?
1: Yeah, so we can create them in schools, and I think that's very important. But I think we've also got to be cautious that we don't load everything onto the shoulders of teachers because they've got quite a lot that they're doing at the moment, especially picking up the pieces after COVID. There's a new Relationships and Sex Education review coming up now, although that was made compulsory. However, more resources are needed for teachers to help them negotiate that. So, yeah, it can take place in schools. It can take place in really small groups within community organizations we should be working with parents and carers to enable them to understand how to have these kind of conversations mm. and also peer mentors are really good yeah so have young people champions that can can lead the charge yeah
0: do you think social media is bringing together people in a different way
2: than than perhaps communication and interactions? previous to that you can but you have to be intentional about it there's lots of research that's been done kind of about echo chambers and bubbles and that you know the way that certain filters will work will mean that you'll see certain kinds of things with other kinds of sites like tiktok the way that the algorithm works is that it will push content to you that looks more like the thing that you are looking so you look at enough bonita memes and funnily enough you see more things like the bonita meme so for example on twitter if I follow you on Twitter, you have a sense of who your audience is because you know roughly who your follower list is. In something like TikTok, it doesn't work like that because the algorithm is carrying your content to somebody else. So in terms of who you might connect with and what you might see, there is the opportunity to see different kinds of things. Now that has, as you say, it's a double-edged sword. Sometimes that can be really good. Sometimes that can be really dangerous, depending on what gets pushed in your direction, depending Mm. on what you're looking at. And I think it's both being really aware of what you're looking at and how the dynamics of those sites work that help you make a choice. And it's about helping people understand what they're looking at, why they're looking at it, and then what they need to do with that information that is critical. Do we think that young people are using social media
0: in a, in a different way from older people? Are they going to social media for different reasons? Are they are they using it in a different way?
1: Yeah, I mean, I can't comment that's more Ruth's area in terms of how older people are using it, but in terms of younger people now, I know that they're going to TikTok rather than Google, like a search engine. A lot of pornography now is accessed on Twitter rather than mainstream streaming sites for pornography. So a lot of young people are using Twitter to access pornography, which makes it incredibly complex and unregulated, and something that we need to talk to them about, but mm-hmm. not admonish them for doing it. But yeah, so there's a, there's different ways, and it's evolving really rapidly. And but there's also a lot of misinformation out there that might pop up in a reel. So it's teaching them critical thinking skills yeah. and working with them to to kind of recognise that. But we've got to get with the programme a little bit and um, realise what is going on and we don't live in a nice, flowery, bubbly, lovely world anymore and I don't know if we ever did but we've got to get out of that kind of element of denial and look at what's really happening and just provide the support that they need but be led by them. I don't know if you wanted to kind of...
2: Yeah, it's interesting the thing about searching on TikTok and why people search on TikTok rather than using a Google search engine. So there was a study that was done and they found two things. One, that it was the desire for authenticity, that it felt more real. Right. If you were seeing something on TikTok than searching for something on Google. So if you're looking for like a restaurant recommendation or a hair tutorial or whatever, TikTok is perceived to be more authentic mm. and also that it was more visual. So rather than having to scroll through lots of written text, being able to see something quickly yeah. was more desirable. It's specifically that using TikTok as a search engine is specifically for what's called the Gen Z category. So those what who is Gen Z? Officially, according to the Pew Internet Research Centre, that those who were born after 97 are considered to be Gen Z. And they use that as a cut-off point because they are the young people for whom having a smartphone or a mobile phone, they've grown up with that. Pretty much sort of like the end of what we would call primary school going into secondary school. So complete social media natives. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just having been brought up in a world where you are always on, Hmm. there's always content to be consumed and you're always expected to be interacting and streaming services. The world that I grew up in is a very different kind of place.
0: It's fascinating, isn't it, how different this technology has made the world. I think that there are some elements of it where you can see that things are very different, but you can also see that perhaps it's just a different medium for stuff that's, that's always happened. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, with the misinformation, disinformation, we've always had people producing pamphlets. Yeah. Where well, you don't know who the author is you know, the information is not necessarily trustworthy. And that's always been there pretty much since you've had the printing press. And prior to that, even before we have the written word, you have to work out when you're talking to somebody, whether somebody is a trustworthy source of information. So we're kind of dealing with the same sort of thing. It's just that it's
1: heightened it it's, it's boosted it it's also a lot more rapid yeah it's a lot quicker so if i wanted when i was i don't know 11 12 wanted to know something we'd have to go to the library and look in an encyclopedia mm-hmm. so there, there was a bit more uh, planning a bit more infrastructure and a bit more kind of like you said you know you have to kind of really think about the information that you want to get whereas now these algorithms are trying to predict the information and it's, it's it's just very very rapid so it's this kind of rapid information that's kind of washing over young people all of the time and I think this is why we need to be led by them because like I said we would have gone to the library to find something out. So we've got some
0: concerns about social media which you've talked about Sophie in terms of helping people arm themselves with critical thinking faculties what else should we be doing do you think I mean should it be more regulated than it is?
1: Oh, I think that's an impossible task, mm. you know. So I don't know whether the the question, the answer that I would give, has any kind of meaning behind it because it's it's too complex. It's too complex to regulate. And should we be regulating things, or should we be recognising how humanity is evolving in terms of the access to information that young people have, and to acknowledge that we have to evolve with it? I think it's too late to put the brakes on with anything. Mm. That sounds if you, really pessimistic. It wasn't meant to be, but I think that's the real real position that we're in, you know, we can't regulate You it's can't what, put
0: the genie back in the bottle.
1: You can't put, you know, Pandora's boxes open.
0: Yeah. But you can look at you can look at which harms are real, which harms are are imagined, you can look at how to mitigate the dangers there. So would you agree that there is a potential for social media to be a force for good? Oh
2: absolutely. Like I can say it's the technology, it's a tool. It's the people who can use it for good. Or not for good. And I think for me, it's, it's, the information is definitely one part of it in terms of the stories that people tell. But the thing about a story is that it's not just an artifact. It's not just a thing. It's about making connection mm. with somebody. Mm. And it's about having the opportunity to then tell that story together or to interact around it. So I think for me, one of the really powerful things about social media is that it opens up the possibility for somebody to talk back. And actually to have a conversation and maybe to have a conversation with somebody with whom you would never have had the opportunity to do that in a face-to-face setting. Mm. I think that's really powerful. And, and also be able to have a space where kind of the stories and the backstories and the responses to things that you don't see, for example, in a television program, where that can be navigated, negotiated. I think that's really valuable. Yeah. Some of what we've talked about
0: has made me think that perhaps social media is almost a form of journalism, but it's a form of journalism where you are the journalist and you are going out and collecting the information. How do we make sure that young people and older people, let's be be honest about it, have the tools to do that? How do we make sure that we are able to approach all of that information in a critical way?
1: So I think if I talk in terms of young people, because that's where my research lies. So if we think about young people, we need to be getting them on board. So it's got to be kind of a co-design, a kind of participatory approach to how. But actually, the first step is recognising it's here to stay and it's going to evolve. And it's going to evolve incredibly quickly. And we've got to recognise we have to run to keep up with what's happening in terms of social media. And then it's having those conversations earlier With children and young people in primary schools, start the discussion. You know, what kind of things are you looking at online? How do you use the online space? And it's about kind of helping them negotiate the spaces that they're in as well. So, you know, like my Twitter is full of drag queens and academics, so it's a really nice place to be. But then sometimes I've followed accounts that I thought were interesting and useful, and actually they've been quite dark and awful. So then you unfollow. So it's about giving permission for young people to unfollow yeah um, and not giving permission like we are in charge it's that giving yourself permission that actually no I can block this person that's fine and to curate yourself to curate yourself what you're
0: saying yeah Yeah. so that's in
2: terms of young people so yeah yeah. I keep wondering what counts as old yeah I'm really quite worrying that I might be in that category (laughs) yeah I think we are
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now, I use social media quite a lot, and I think that I use it for lots of different reasons as well. I use it for engaging with friends and family. I use it for talking to interesting people, seeing interesting things. But I do use it for news. So I've found myself that I now get most of my news, I think, through social media and not not through news channels. Now, it might be that it is trusted sources like newspapers who are, on social media, but there are other venues for that as well, or other reach that that can appear as well. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing?
2: I think we have to recognise that, actually, if you look nationally and internationally, that varies hugely. So you talk about countries where there is censorship on social media and there's censorship on what is available Mm. or not available, Mm. then, you know, you control what people see. To some extent, you control what they're able to make decisions about and their view Hmm. of the world that's around them so I think you know internationally if you start to think outside the UK think about other contexts the first time I ever traveled into China I was completely naive got off the plane oh guess what my Facebook doesn't work here yeah the real naivety I had around that you know there have been plenty of studies that have looked at the the way that news was shaped around certain kinds of algorithms around certain kinds of political events and Mm. how that seemed to alter voting patterns (sighs) then you can see that there are you know serious issues about that so I think it comes back to that question of like how do you decide what's trustworthy in the first instance, and what are the criteria you're using for that and then making things available as freely as possible so that people get a choice about what they're looking at and can make some decisions about it so i think the double-edged sword plays out again i think with pretty much every topic we could talk about with social media there's going to be some strength in it and there's going to be some risk in it Mm. and i think my aspiration is that we learn to maximize the strengths and mitigate the risk yeah yeah um, as far as we possibly can
0: It's been fascinating, just this brief glimpse into both of your research, because it's research looking at a a kind of new form of communication, which is changing the way that we can learn and make decisions as individuals, but also the way that we operate in our societies and and our democracies. Sophie, how did you end up? Doing research into social media.
1: About twenty years ago I worked with youth offenders, lads under the age of eighteen, and they were just such inspirational young people. And then I spent six years working with teenage parents and you know, it's a job I look back now and I miss it still. They were lovely, they were so just amazing, inspirational and parents and young people, but they didn't have a voice. Hmm. No one listened. Society hated them and yet they were just as good as parents parent as I was to my children, and yet, they, well, they had more energy. But <laughs> apart from that, there was very little difference. You know, they loved their children as much as I loved mine, and yet society gave them a really, really hard time. And so that's, that kind of evolved in terms of my work, and then I realised kind of society had a problem with young people and sex. Mm. The two were seen as mutually exclusive, and that's why people hated or didn't like, or there's a stigma around teenage parents. It's because there's no more of an advert that you've had sex and a big pregnant belly yeah. or a push chair. yeah. So from then, I thought, right, I could do some work in sexual health. So I worked for a leading sexual health charity and worked across Birmingham and Solihull in schools, educating on relationships and sex education. And again there, I just thought, wow, these young people have so much agency and we, we don't think that they have they just got no voice and yet they had so much to say and so much to lead us on. And then I started studying it and went over into academia probably about eight or nine years ago. And was it an easy path?
0: Did it just kind of unfold
1: quite naturally in front of you? No, absolutely not. So parallel to all of the work I was doing, I, I was studying. So I didn't start university till I was 26 and I'd had my first child. So I've got four now. So I was studying, I did an undergraduate and then I did a master's degree. And then I, I was kind of in line to get a scholarship for my PhD with a full stipend, which means get kind of salaried as well yeah and I got reserve. I didn't get it and it was a body blow I've never felt such a knockback in my career it took me a long time to kind of pick myself up and dust myself off but I thought no I'm going to keep going and do you know what it was the best thing that ever happened to me because because of that I then went to work at Worcester University as a lecturer instead of being a full-time student and did my PhD part-time and that's how my trajectory has gone so quickly and rapidly is because of that real knockback that I had. So I've learned from that that actually sometimes the things that knock you off your feet might be the best thing that ever happens to you. Yeah,
0: that's incredible. And how about you, Ruth? Have you had moments where there was a wobble or things went off in a different direction or perhaps unexpected moments that might have influenced your path?
2: Oh for sure. So the day before I started my first academic job my dad died very unexpectedly and it really changed my perspective. It changed my perspective because it made me come back to the fact that yeah our jobs are really important and what we do is really important the legacy that we leave through our work is important but it's only part of who we are actually the people that are in our world are deeply precious and actually my response to my dad dying was to think well what would i regret most if my days were short and actually my response to that was to want to have children which i hadn't really wanted to do at all before that and so about 11 months later my daughter was born yeah (laughs) and actually I think that's been really valuable for two reasons one that it's always made me forced me really to have balance between what I do when I'm in the office and what I do when I'm Not in the office. Mm. And I think also it's really helped me as an academic say it's not an either or. You can do both and. There are lots of choices that you can make for lots of different reasons. And you can make good choices that combine lots of different parts of your life in different ways. There are ways to make things work and succeed in all kinds of different directions that are valuable. Thank you very
0: much for sharing those stories. Thank you for chatting about social media much more broadly and your research as well. And these stories that we've shared amongst us today will form part of a podcast and will be shared to lots of other people, so thank you. You're welcome. So thank you very much to Sophie Kinghill and Ruth Page. In our next episode, we'll be exploring the environment as we look at the big question, how can we make water safe? I'm Alice Roberts and the Curiosity Vault is a Fresh Air production for the University of Birmingham. The producers are Harriet Wells and Izzy Clark. If you want to find out more about University Birmingham research and even become part of it, there's a link in the show notes. And remember to follow or subscribe now for free wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode.